0: Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus going up to the northern part of the country, to Cana of Galilee, for the second time. The first time for his first miracle, changing water to wine. Uh, by simply speaking the word, it was done. And uh, then uh, he On his way up the second time in John chapter 4, it says that he needed to go through Samaria and he had a divine appointment with a woman at the well, at uh, Jacob's well there at Sychar, just south of Shechem, ancient Shechem. We talked about that. And then as he finished going on up to Galilee, we saw that he actually went there to a people who were in the process of... Really kind of having this stunted faith in him because they were out seeking the signs and the wonders instead of seeking the one who could forgive their sins. And, and he went on purpose to be again to begin to, to bring correction to that. And that would be something that he would essentially do battle with for his entire earthly ministry because people like signs and wonders. We talked about, remember David Copperfield, how we like to be, uh, entertain. We like to have our senses fooled, and we like to see things that are out of the ordinary, and it appeals to this thing in us for the sensational. And Jesus's claims were indeed sensational, and he does indeed have the ability to alter the laws of physics because he owns them, and yet that wasn't his main point. He was demonstrating that he could alter the laws of physics because only God can do that. We looked at that in Matthew towards the end of the message last time. And In doing so, that they would see that he has the authority to forgive sins, to be able to reconcile man to God, and that being his primary focus in his ministry. So here uh, we see the the first miracle was there at Cana in Galilee. The, the second miracle was healing the nobleman's son. Remember, he goes back to Cana as he goes into Galilee, and a nobleman who was from Capernaum, which was 20 miles away plus, uh, came to see him there and said, my son is at the point of death. And Jesus says, just go, your son's healed. And John is very certain to tell us that when the guy's servants came out to meet him, that uh, uh, it was indeed one o'clock in the afternoon when he was healed, the same time that Jesus said, your son is healed. And so we saw that. Now, at this point in John chapter 5, Jesus travels back down to Judea. He travels to the southern part of the country because this is one of the three national feasts. And he will do the third of eight miracles we see here in the Gospel of John as we look at uh, the healing of the man in the pool of Bethesda. I want to mention too that this is one of those passages that will send you packing for the commentaries. It will send you into a place of going, what on earth is being talked about here? If you look at it at face value, it's kind of confusing as you go. We'll look at that and we'll, we'll take that apart a bit this morning. But I want to, I want to take a minute and just remember the main purpose of John's gospel here. And in chapter 20 of this gospel in verses 30 and 31, he says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing, you may have life in his name. That is the focus of John's writing. It was the focus of Jesus' ministry, and and we do well to not depart from that. There's some pretty sensational things going on here in chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5 really kind of establish the setting for this. I want to read through them. We'll look at a couple of slides after that. And then we'll sort of unpack these and take it apart a bit. So uh, verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches, or colonnades would be actually a better translation of that. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. This is where it starts to get a little weird. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. For now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. I want to look at there are three things about this, just in general. The first thing is it's very important to note that Jesus goes specifically for this one man. We're told in the narrative here that there's a great crowd of people. There's a, a multitude of people. I looked up multitude on my computer yesterday, and it means a whole bunch. Um <laughs> I thought, well, is there some secret meaning here? you know is this some deep thing? No, it just means there's a lot of people there there were a There was a crowd and and he gets to these pools and again i, I mentioned there these were colonies there were five porches. it says, but there are five colonies and what a col it was a row of columns that established a roof around the outer perimeter of these pools and, and i 'll show you in a minute but and then there was a dividing row of columns down the middle of it that established the five porches. But you could literally get hundreds of people into this thing. I mean, it was a big place. And it was a big deal in Jesus' day. We'll talk about that too. Uh, The other thing I want to bring out here is verses 3b, the the second half of of verse 3, and all of verse 4 are missing in earlier manuscripts, okay? It's very important that we note that. I love the way that the Lord has ensured that his word would be transmitted to us accurately down through the ages. Literally thousands of fragments of manuscripts go into making up the New Testament. And I mean thousands of them. And so you have, these guys didn't have printing presses, they had scribes, copyists, and they would copy from one manuscript to the next, and they had very strict rules in doing that and there were times where scribes did little embellishments and uh the reason here is that i bring that out is this could be one of two things with with verse 3 and 4 the last half of verse 3 it could either be a scribal embellishment because and we'll look at verse 7 in a minute uh because it verse 7 begs for an explanation of what's going on so It could be that as these guys copied and as the dates went later, and evidence tends to suggest this, that somebody added a footnote in the margin or and it got worked into the text of trying to explain what this water being stirred is about in verse 7. And so that was very possibly inserted in verse three and four. So stay with me on this. Now, with that being the case, it's been taken out because the the further back these manuscripts date, they go by the amount of information that's available and the further back the dates go. So you have a lot of manuscripts that agree that are later that have this 3b and 4 in them. But as you go back and as as scholars have gone back and looked at earlier manuscripts that have come available since the King James was made, you see that that's not there. And so we're going to look at it and then we're going to skip it. I want to explain it though, and I want to tell you why it's worthy to be skipped. And it doesn't mean that God's word is not inerrant. It means that there are times where we as Students of the Bible need to take a good hard look and see what's consistent with solid scriptural theology. Okay? This is not consistent with good theology, and and I'll tell you why. But before we get into that, uh, the third thing is is in verse 13, in, in this whole passage, it says in verse 3 that Jesus Uh, gets in there and there's a great multitude. In verse 13, it says that he withdraws because of this crowd. And I want to look at that. I want to take a good look at that a little later on. But before that, you see here, we have a map on the left and it basically shows, I want to give you a point of reference. You don't have to know cartography. You don't have to be a map expert, but we know that in Jerusalem, there's a Temple Mount in ancient Jerusalem. So you see the Temple Mount in blue here. and, And that would be where the Temple Mount exists today. To the right of that is the Kidron Valley, and that's a valley that separates the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. Okay, uh, The second slide I'm going to show you in a minute will be like looking over the wall from the Kidron Valley north of the Temple. Now, the Pool of Bethesda is north of the Temple Mount, almost to the outer edges of this, the old city. It's important to know the geography. There's there's two pools talked about. The pool of Siloam is mentioned in chapter nine, and that is south of the Temple Mount, down at the intersection of the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Gehenna, or the Valley of, uh, uh, let's see, Hinnom, yeah, the Old Testament equivalent. So just so you know, it's north of the city. North of the Temple Mount, uh, towards the eastern site, the northeastern quarter of the city. Now you can't see in this light very well, but this is a pool, or this is a photo of the excavated pool of Bethesda. It was a very deep pool, and 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 if you can see down, when my wife and I went there, we were amazed because we were looking down into this huge pit. And you can see stairs in different parts of this thing. It was, it was a big place. And now a lot of the buildings were built in the intervening years. I mean, over 2,000 years, things change a bit. But it was a big area. And that's the point that I want to make. This isn't just a little pool with a couple of patios. It's a big place. It was, actually, it was, it was a center for activity, for healing activity in Jesus's day. Let's go to the next slide. All right, so if we were looking over the wall from the Kidron Valley, we'd be able to see that there was this and this is there's an actual scale model of ancient Jerusalem in Jerusalem now. Uh this is this is very much like it was taken from that. If you see on the left there's the North Temple Wall. That would be the Temple Mount, the northern wall of the Temple Temple Mount. North of that, this Pool of Bethesda, you can see where it would have five porticos or five colonnades. It would be roughly square or rectangular with a center porch going down the middle. The excavations that have been done in Israel indicate that this was the structure, that, and it's been found. They they used to think that it had five sides, like it was shaped like a pentagon, and that's not so. Uh, in our lifetimes, this has been excavated, and this is a very accurate representation of what was built in Jesus's day. So just so you have a point of reference, you're looking at a big place covered with columns that enclosed porches so that people could be protected from the elements, from the rain, and also in this part of the world, it's very warm during the, the spring and summer months. So let's go ahead and go on, and we're going to take a look, a little closer look. I'm going to go back and unpack verses 1 through 5 here and then go on. Verse 1 again, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after this, after the healing of the nobleman's son, Jesus probably stuck around in Galilee for a while and then he headed back down. It says that there was a feast of the Jews. Now, as probably this is one of the three pilgrimage feasts in, in Israel. The Jews had seven primary feasts that they observed. Three of these were pilgrimage feasts. They were ones that, if you lived within 20 miles, you were required by law to be at the feast. If you lived further than that, you could certainly make a pilgrimage. And people would make pilgrimages from all over the empire to come to these three feasts. Primarily, it was Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, which was 50 days out. Passover was it was held at the first Sabbath after the spring equinox full moon, okay? There's a there's sort of a complicated way that they came up with that. Well, it's not that complicated, but there was a formula that they established the dates, much like we established Easter. You know how Easter is on a different day every year? It has to do with the lunar cycles, all right? And so Passover, again, was held at a full moon after the spring equinox. So 50 days out from that, the giving of the Holy Spirit, remember, Passover is from when Israel was delivered from Egypt, we looked at that one time, the same dates going forward to Jesus' day, the Passover, the sacrifice, Jesus being the Passover lamb, 50 days out from that, in Moses' day, the law was given on Mount Sinai. That was Pentecost. All right, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was given to the church. So that would be the next pilgrimage feast. There's a very good chance that this is Pentecost when Jesus is going, because we know that he has been at the Passover feast when we look back in chapter two and and looked at Nicodemus and all of that. He went to the Passover. That's when he turned over the money changers tables and all that. So this is like seven weeks and one day after would be the feast uh, of Pentecost. The, the last one would be a fall feast. since the feast of booths or tabernacles. And, and Uh, Some fascinating stuff about that I'm not going to take the time to go into. The point is, is this would be wall-to-wall people in Jerusalem during this feast. One and a half to three million people would come and make their pilgrimages to, to Jerusalem to attend the feast. So there would be a lot of people here. And Jesus takes off from Galilee, heads back down to Jerusalem, and goes to this feast. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches, or five colonnades, as we looked at. Um, one of the things that's interesting, in in modern times, well, I should say modern times, it, it actually started back during, like, the Crusades. There's a church that is right next to uh the Pool of Bethesda, and it, it's called St. Anne's Church. It's a Catholic church. It's run by the Catholic Church, Uh and this place is known. If you've ever been to Israel and you've been to the Pool of Bethesda, which is a must-see if you go, uh, St. Anne's Church has the most amazing acoustics of any building I've ever been in. And I'm, that's not just my opinion. You can look it up if you'd like online or, or uh, in other ways. But St. Anne's Church, it's a stone church that it will take somebody with a really lousy voice and make you sound like an angel. I mean, it is amazing. We worship inside of this church, and, and we were, I mean, I looked around, and like all the ladies were weeping because it was like so, well, some of the guys too. All right, maybe I was. But um, it, was a, it was a powerful time of worship, and, and groups go specifically to the Pool of Bethesda so they can worship in St. Anne's Church. Uh, just a side note, that's free. Uh, anyway, so there, by the Sheep Gate, now the Sheep Gate It's where they brought the sheep in, because as you can see in the diagram there, the drawing that I showed you, it's very close to the temple mount. And they would bring the sheep in through the sheep gate for the sacrifices. This was how they stocked the temple, all right? That was the primary reason of the sheep gate. And so uh, in verse 3, it says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, and as you'll see, Oh, you can't see it on that. All right. I have it grayed out, but it's so light on our projector. Waiting in brackets here, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. That was either added, or there are some cultural things going on here, and you can take your pick. Uh, It's... The thing that's interesting is these people believed there was something going on there. Uh, like I said, verse 7 is definitely part of the text in all of the manuscripts. And it, it leaves you a question, with a question mark if you don't look at verses 3 and 4. The point is, is these people were all there waiting for something to happen. And, you know, I hit the commentaries on this after I spent some time just looking at it and saying, Lord, what does this all mean and all? And, and, and people are kind of divided. It was probably a scribal insertion, but there was probably something to it in Jesus's day. Uh, the thing is that these people were putting their hope in something that was really pretty flimsy. I mean, think about it. These guys didn't look to God for their healing. They were looking to some angel that came down once a year to stir up the waters and one person would be healed. That's it. You got to get there first. That doesn't sound like the God that we know and love and serve. Uh, it's inconsistent with God anywhere else in the scripture. The five things about this that I see, the first is that this scene, it has a high level of competition. I remember the first time I was exposed to competitiveness as a Christian. It was just a a few months after I got saved, uh, back in the early 80s. And our church formed a softball team. And, you know, I was a young guy in my 20s and loved playing softball, so I signed up. And we were out there playing. I was so poor, (laughs) that I couldn't afford a glove. I didn't, I mean, you know, this wasn't part of my budget. I I couldn't afford to buy a, a baseball mitt. And so I borrowed this guy's glove. He was very gracious and let me use his glove for every game. And then there was this one point where this guy that was on our team just came and unloaded on me. And I mean, I was crushed. I was totally thrashed by this guy because I didn't have a glove and I wasn't supporting our team. And I thought, really? And so I went and I talked to my pastor about it. And I said, you know, Rick, I don't understand this. I mean, and and he just said, look, John, competitive sports freak my head to begin with. That was what he said. He said, they freak my head. <laughs> and I went, okay, I get that. And he said, I just, I, I struggle with what place they have in the body of Christ because competition is not something that is is a fruit of the spirit. So here you have these guys here that are competing to get into the water first. That's not from God. The second thing is, it develops a me-first attitude. I'm going to be the first one into the water. And then it rewards it. I was the first one in the water, now I'm healed. See, that's, the, that's what's going on here. And again, This is inconsistent with good biblical theology and it's inconsistent with the person and the work of Jesus, the character and the nature of God. It's just not part of it. This is the flesh and rewarding the flesh. Job well done. Hey, you got healed. You made it to the pool before everybody else. How many people did you push out of the way to get there? The third thing is this is based on works. Grace is not showing anywhere in this. And we'll see that when Jesus deals with this guy, it is 100% grace. The fourth is the strongest are rewarded and the weakest are left out. If you, are, if you have some infirmity and you're trying to make it down to the water, you're going to have to have less of an infirmity than the next guy to make it there. I, you know, I just as a side note, Jesus goes to this guy It says he had an infirmity 38 years. You think that he has much chance of making it down to the water first if he's been trying to do that for 38 years? I don't think so. This is a hopeless, hopeless scene that Jesus shows up at. And he goes to the neediest guy there. The last thing is that we'll see in the text here that Jesus completely ignores the pool. He has no interaction whatsoever. He just simply goes in. He's at the pool. He doesn't have any observance of what's going on. He doesn't have any comments. He just cuts to the chase. So it's a desperate, helpless scene. And Jesus goes to the person with the greatest need. I like that. Verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. That's six or seven years longer than Jesus had walked on the earth in his incarnation. I mean, this guy has been in this condition since BC. I mean, that's a long time. We'll see in verses six through nine some things about Jesus. And I'll I'll tell you guys, as we go through chapter five in the Gospel of John, there are some marvelous revelations of who Jesus is and what he's about, the person and the work. You've heard me say that before. It's very, very important that we have a firm grasp. Christian that's been around for a while, tighten your grasp with these truths, because these are elementary truths, but they are Huge, great truths that we know and that we learn about Jesus, about the Lord that we have in our lives. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we get to know these things, as they reveal through his word, we get to know him better. And as we get to know him better, I'll guarantee you, we will grow. Because there's room for all of us to grow in our relationship with him. We're going to see the unparalleled knowledge of Jesus here as he just looks at this guy and he says, you want to be healed? You want to be made well? We'll see the depths of his compassion here towards this man who had been a mess for 38 years. We'll see the sovereign power of Jesus towards this one guy. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? That's a great question. I'll submit to you, brothers and sisters, not everybody wants to be made well. Physically, in this guy's case, they didn't have a welfare system in, in Israel in the first century. You depended on other people and their generosity to be able to even live, to be able to eat. And there would have been a question mark in this guy's mind. He'd been this, doing this for 38 years. He knew the ropes. He knew who was generous. He, You know, you, you see the thing with the... And I'm not putting people down who are infirmed. I'm just saying that there was a cost. Uh, and... I mean, it was a chosen lifestyle for some, for him, not so much. I mean, he's sick, he's, got, he's paralyzed. But not everybody wants to be made well. We see that when we go out to share Christ with a lost, dying, messed up world. Do you ever think about that? We actually, and I was sharing with some people the other night at our men's group, that I just have a burden for, for young people today, I, I, I just a huge burden. It's because you see people wandering aimlessly as they try to establish what is it that I'm about? What is it that my life is going to look like? How am I, you know, how is my soul anchored here? And I'm telling you, it's a lost, lost generation. People don't have answers. And the burden I have is we of all people do. We have answers to the problems that these guys are struggling with. We have answers to what is the, the direction that you have in your life. We have answers to the areas that people are just grappling with. Because the world doesn't tell the truth. I'm telling you, it doesn't tell the truth. There are programs and self-help deals and, and seminars and the whole thing. And it all falls short of the transforming work of the gospel in a man or a woman's or a boy's or girl's life. We're to be about our father's business. If there's nothing else that shows up in my life when I get to the end of it, I want to have it be known that I was about my father's business, not for my glory, but for his. This is serious business that we're engaged in. And as such... Like Peter said, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Great questions. I wonder how long Jesus looked at this guy. So Jesus walks up. He walks into these pools, and there's perhaps hundreds. There are, there's a multitude, a lot, <laughs> laying there. And he walks up, and it says that he saw him lying there, and he knew that he'd been in that condition for a long time. Interesting, he goes to another individual. You know, we see Jesus a lot in the Gospels. He's dealing with the crowds, right? But I want to submit to you, where he does his best work, it's one-on-one. So far in this Gospel, we saw Nicodemus, Jesus with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, being probably shocked after Jesus turned over those money changers' tables and made the cord or the whip of cords, you know, and and was just turning their whole gig upside down at Annas' bazaar, Nicodemus scratching his head, there's something powerful about this guy. Comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus tells him these radical, probably the most radical things he had ever heard. He was a deeply religious man. So Nicodemus, "You've got it all wrong." Gotta be born again, or you can't see the kingdom of God. It's not that you might not, you won't. And so he has this one on one interaction with Nicodemus that has gone down through history as perhaps one of the most potent, powerful messages of the gospel ever that we use regularly. Then we see him with the Samaritan woman. Remember, we looked at her, the outcast woman in the outcast society. So we go from a religious leader, and then he goes purposely and singles out this woman, knowing she's going to be at the well at noon, and tells her, you know, the water that you're dealing with here at this well isn't enough. Drink the water I want to give you. It's living water. You won't ever be thirsty again. And kind of like Nicodemus, she doesn't get it at first. We talked about that. And then pretty soon the lights began to come on. And before long, here's this woman who wanted nothing to do with anybody in town or she wouldn't have been there at noon, running down the street, telling anybody she could about this Jesus. And a great deal of the town comes to faith in Christ. It's a big first revival in the New Testament. A bunch of Gentiles. I love it. We see the nobleman, my son is dying, there's no hope. You're the only hope I have. And he got that right. And now we see Jesus with this guy, unnamed. We don't know who he is. He shows up for a moment in the scripture and he's gone, but some powerful things happen here. In all of these, we see the compassion of Jesus clearly poured out. He didn't come to just announce a formula. Let me tell you about the four spiritual laws, Nicodemus. Let me lead you through a formula of, this is what it is to be saved. I just want you to repeat after me. And I'm not saying those are bad things necessarily, but I'm saying that they, they can gut the message if we're not careful and if we reduce God to a set of formulas. Now, let me tell you about the person of Jesus, merciful, compassionate, loving, kind, gracious, long-suffering. Let me tell you about what he has to do with you. But no, not everybody wants to be made well. We live in a world that rejects Christ. We live in a world that has locked him out of the schools. And you know, there's some things going on, guys. Pray for us. Because there are some schools in this area that are beginning to open their doors. To the church. There are people in administrative positions in in Oregon here. I was at a pastor's meeting a couple of weeks ago that are beginning to say, you know, something different about some of these kids. They kind of have it together. They kind of live differently. And they're not looking at the power of the gospel, they're just saying that those church kids are kind of different. Praise God. And they're beginning to open their campuses. Campuses. There are two schools that I know of now that have opened their campuses to a couple of Calvary Chapel pastors here in Oregon. And, and, and we're praying. Because God is doing something. I'll tell you what. I just, you know, I don't let man's philosophies and man's rules and all of that trip me up when it comes to, sharing the gospel. Yes, are we to obey the governing authorities? Absolutely. Paul says very clearly in Romans 13, you don't want to be afraid of the government? Follow the rules. Loose paraphrase, but that's what he says. But when it comes to God's law and man's law, when those fly into conflict, we go with what God has to say. It's very much like the apostles. Remember the Jewish leaders, they brought them all in and said, you, we forbid you to share this Jesus with anybody. And they essentially said, yeah, Right. I mean, yeah, it's paraphrased again, but they went out and said, you're not going to, you you won't shut our mouths. And so I, I love the fact that it, there seems to be something going on and, and, and pray because if God's in it, the doors are going to open and that could be the seeds of revival one heart at a time. You know what I, I feel about revival? It's not a big tent where, you know, you have some Southern preacher in a polyester suit up there screaming and shouting, <laughs> condemning people. Revival is one heart at a time with people whose hearts are being touched, whose hearts are being reached by the Holy Spirit through somebody who's willing to step up and to be a voice. Something else I think it's worth noting here is grace assumes helplessness. Now, in verse 7, Or verse 6, he says, do you want to be made well? In verse 7, the sick man answers and says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. You know why I think this is fascinating? (laughs) This guy answers a question that Jesus doesn't ask. Jesus didn't ask him why haven't you been made well? I mean, that's what he answers is, well, I haven't been made well because nobody is here to help me and I can't step into the pool when it's stirred up and there's all this stuff. He complicates things. Jesus cuts right through it. Verse 80 says to him, he says, rise, take up your bed and Walk. In Mark chapter 3, we see, as uh, another guy that was healed on the Sabbath. This is on the Sabbath, we'll get to that. In Mark chapter 3, we see another guy that's healed on the Sabbath. The guy with the withered hand. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And I submit to you that there is God's part and there is our part. Nobody had ever told that guy to stretch out his hand. Nobody had told this guy, take up your, get up. He says, get up, grab your bed and walk on out of here. Really? God's part is to heal. Our part is to simply believe it, to cooperate with it. As that man stretched out his hand, the moment he began to stretch out his hand, it was made well, it was made whole. Well, have you ever wondered what would have happened had he not stretched out his hand? He had to have that much faith that maybe what this guy was saying was true. Just that much How many people had come up to this guy in 38 years and said, Hey, get up, grab your bed, and walk? Not many. But Jesus does. And this guy complies. It wouldn't have been a typical bed, it would have been a mat or a pad. You know, they didn't have, he didn't say, Hey, could somebody grab my box spring? I got my mattress, but, uh, and oh, the Hollywood frame over there too. I paid a lot of money for that. It would have just simply been a mat or a pad. But Jesus says, pick it up. You're healed. He could have stayed where he was at. And I believe that. Or he could take God for his word. Folks, there are times where the Lord challenges us. We could stay where we're at. Well, this is how I've done for a long time. This is the way I've been. It's just how I am. And we can stay where we're at, even though he's challenging us, even though he wants to stretch us, even though he wants to grow us. Or we can comply, take him at his word, and step out. Those are challenging things. And and he does. He challenges each of us. Verse 9. And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. I love that John tags that on. And that day was the Sabbath. You know trouble's coming, right? In Mark chapter two, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says to the guys, because they were, they were giving him a hard time about healing the, the blind guy, uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Guess what? He says, Jesus works on Saturday. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I made it for man, not man for the Sabbath. The law of Moses never said anything about a man not being able to carry his bed on the Sabbath. It was not about rules. These guys had so reduced the things of God. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed what a bunch of sticks in the mud. You know, I've read this, and I've, I've read this many times over the years, and I always, it, it always kind of gets the same response. I kind of feel like my jaw drops open, like, really? They had to know this guy. He'd been there at the pool or in their midst for a long, long time. And the first thing that they can say is, hey, you're not doing it right. They're critical rather than supportive. They're, they're legalistic as opposed to having an attitude of celebration. This guy was healed. I know he's been crippled for a long, 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 long time. He was that way when I was a little boy. But the first thing they do is take on this arrogant attitude. I don't care if you've been blessed. You shouldn't be carrying your bed. By the way, this is free. How do you respond when somebody around you gets blessed? And perhaps it was a blessing that you would have enjoyed? How do we respond? Good question. Do we rejoice with those that rejo- re- rejoice? Do we, do we have an attitude of, wow, I am so thrilled for you. Even if there's a lack in my life. <laughs> or does my flesh get in there and go, man, I sure, I don't know why they deserve that. That should have been mine. Huh. Yeah, well, I'll tell them I'm happy for them something the Lord has shown me uh, repeatedly over the years, is there's a difference between grace and making nice. Making nice is a veil for my flesh. It looks like grace on the surface. They both look the same on the surface. But it's the motive of the heart. Making nice is when Perhaps I'm dealing with somebody I don't like or somebody I struggle with or whatever and I just make nice. Praise the Lord. But inside, I'm kind of torn up about them. Grace is genuinely loving that person and it shows. It can look the same as making nice, but my heart is genuinely embracing and loving towards that person. It happens in churches, guys. You've heard me say, we want grace. We all want grace. But the human condition is we struggle with having grace for others. We do. Be honest. We do. We want to think that God grades on the curve and actually somebody that's worse than me is not so much and somebody that's better than me is, well, you know, but actually he probably measures everybody by who I am. That's not how it works. So we have a choice as the Lord challenges us. We can either stay where we're at, crippled, perhaps in an area of our lives. Or we can take it for his word and respond to him in faith. Didn't take a lot of faith for this guy to pick up his bed, but he picked up his bed. Verse 11, he answered them and he said, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him and said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn, verse 13, a multitude being in that place. So here's the scene, guys. He walks in, he goes down from, from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He goes to the pool of Bethesda. He walks into this pool, this huge complex, He walks right up to one guy. He says, you want to be healed? And the guy says, well, yeah, but, uh, 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 well, there's nobody to help me in the water and all this stuff. And then he says, just get up. Grab your bed. Walk. He doesn't go to anybody else. He leaves immediately. Why? Why? Think about it. Jesus has been, he's been dealing with people that have the signs and wonders mentality, right? We've talked about that a number of times. We see it showing up already a number of times here in the Gospel of John. There would be a free-for-all as this guy was healed. If he stuck around, mayhem, pandemonium would have broken out. Everybody would be lining up for the signs and wonders, Jesus, will you heal me show? So he heals this guy and he leaves, but he's not done with him. It would have been a sign seeking tumult. But his emphasis wasn't on physical healing. Yeah, he healed this guy physically, but that wasn't his emphasis. We'll see that in the text. He could have stuck around and worked the room. You know how politicians do that. They work the room. We call it working the room. Yeah. Stick around long enough. I'll say something that'll wow you. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is sobering. And he said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus not only warns this guy, he threatens him. This is an overt threat. It's not just a fun little Sunday school warning. Question, in this man's life, what would have been worse than 38 years of paralysis? Not much. Not much. Verse 28 of the same chapter, Jesus says, Don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which... All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. He's not stating a works-based salvation here. He's saying that the outworking of your salvation will result in a life that is characterized by good or characterized by evil. And when he's talking to this guy about a worse thing, there are other warnings throughout the New Testament that tend to imply that worse thing could be death. That worse thing could be separation from him, depending on the person's situation, where they're at with God. And I'm not trying to make a, 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 a talk here on eternal security. As I've said before, don't ask me about yours. I'm secure eternally. I know that. I believe that. I teach that. And... When Jesus talks about a worse thing, I don't think he's talking about a worse illness. I think he's talking about this guy's physical disposition in general, perhaps his eternal disposition. When he says a worse thing, essentially he's saying there are consequences to sin. Ananias and Sapphira, when they sold the land, remember they came. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and down they went? That's a worse thing. When the guy in 1 Corinthians was sleeping with his stepmother and they were taunting it as, hey, we're under grace, it's cool. And Paul said, I've delivered such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved. That's a worse thing. There are consequences to sin. In Hebrews 12, Where the writer says, you know, if you belong to him, you will be chastised. You will go to the woodshed with dad. You will. In 1 Corinthians 11, I mean, these are just passages that pop into my mind. There are others as well. Where where Paul is talking about coming to the Lord's table, taking communion. He says, you know, if you're going to do that in a flippant manner. He said, that's not a good thing. And for this reason, some of you sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. So Jesus comes to this guy. He finds him in the temple. And I think that that's noteworthy because this guy, what's the first thing he does when he's healed? He goes to worship. I believe that he was uh, sincere in his intention to worship God. I don't know if he had been involved in sin prior and this was a judgment on that. The, the, The text doesn't say. Could have been. The point is, Jesus is essentially telling this guy, he's exhorting this guy, he's saying, don't misunderstand healing in your life and minimize the seriousness of sin in going back to your old ways. Don't do it. I think that it's really important that we understand as Christians it's so important that we don't adopt an attitude of seeing either how close can the, to the line can I live without stepping over. Because you know what? If you live too close to that line, you will step over. There's also a place where perhaps we've been Christians for a long time. And I'll tell you what's happened in my life that I've noted. And that the Lord, it's like he has a chisel sometimes because I start to get a crust over my heart. That's just how I've been. Oh, Lord, you just don't seem to be wanting to invade that area. And he's going, yes, I have. You just won't let me. And sometimes he chisels away at our souls because he wants us to relent and give him that thing that we've been packing around forever. Let him have it. Let him do the work he wants to do. Let him do divine surgery in your heart. I guarantee you, painful as it might be, it's always better on the other side. You're always more useful. Your life is more pliable. It's less inflexible to the things of God. And you're open to the moving of the Spirit in ways that you wouldn't otherwise be. That's what Jesus is warning this guy about be open. Don't just lock down the hatches to me now that you've been healed. Be open. Don't let a worse thing come upon you because of the work that I've done. It's what he talks about when he talks about sweeping out the house, you know, and if you don't fill it with something, then seven more come back in. You guys know the story? Same kind of idea here verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus that made him well. And we're going to look at that next week. But before we close, I want to take a look um, at another account here in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler. And I want to draw some contrasts out of here. So Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. And verse 17 says that as Jesus was going out on the road, he's in Judea here, He's going out of the road. One came running and knelt before him and asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, that's a good theme. That's a good thing to ask. I mean, a young guy, whole life in front of him, well-to-do, well-healed. But initially, he's saying, What shall I do? And that puts Jesus' attention directly on this guy. Verse 18, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, that is, God. So he challenges this guy's casual use of words. Oh, really? So why do you call me good, young man? (laughs) Nobody's good but God. Is that what you're saying? is implied. Verse 19, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, don't steal, do not bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, when Jesus tells this guy this, he's quoting from the second tablet of the testimony. Remember, there were two stone tablets that Moses came down the mountain with. These commandments are on the second one, all right? and that, And it is worth noting here. Verse 20, and he answered, the, the rich young ruler answers Jesus, says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. He said, I've done this since my bar, bar mitzvah, Jesus. I, man, I have done this. I, I am on top of it. And Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, wonder how long he looked at this guy, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus loved this guy. And he put his finger on this guy's master passion. What was his master passion? Interesting, as he reveals it in telling him to go and sell all that he has and give it to the poor, come and follow me, take up the cross. He was violating two commandments from the first tablet, the first two. You'll have no other gods before me. His God was his stuff. And you'll never, you'll not serve other gods. He was serving his possessions. They were more important. Again, his master passion was not Jesus. It was, he, it was the God of his stuff, the God of materialism, and he was serving that. It's very clearly indicated this guy is indicted because he has m- many possessions and he goes away sorrowful. Because what Jesus has put his finger on, and it's not that in order to have right relationship with him, we all have to go sell all our stuff. That's not what's being said here. For this guy, here's a guy that's got everything. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Get rid of that thing that is controlling you. Get rid of that thing that you are putting more value in than me. and Then come and follow me instead of following it. It's idolatry. And he's essentially telling this guy who comes to him on the basis of law, and Jesus, as we know, operates on the basis of grace, if you want to make it by rules, look at how many rules you're keeping. Oh, I've kept all of these from my youth up. Well, there's always one more. If the basis of your relationship with God is how good you're doing, by following the rules, there's always going to be one more rule. So go and sell all your stuff. We see in this story some contrasts. Do you want to be made well? We see the man at Bethesda, and we see the rich young ruler. I've listed 10 things here. And we'll just kind of quickly go through them and kind of bounce from one side of this chart to the other. And I don't, I apologize if it's hard to read. I tried to get as big as I could (laughs) for the screen. The first is the man at Bethesda had nothing but a mat, his bed. The rich young ruler had great possessions. He had the stuff that the world has to offer. The other guy had nothing but paralysis and a bed. The second is the man at Bethesda had had a very difficult life. The rich young ruler had had a life of privilege and ease. The man at Bethesda was pursued by Jesus. The young guy in the story that we just read, the rich young ruler, pursued Jesus. But I want you to note, he was pursuing him for the wrong reasons. The man at Bethesda was dependent upon others. The rich young ruler was independent of others. He didn't have any, he didn't depend on other people. He had all he needed. He was very comfortable with his stuff. The fifth is, The man at Bethesda had little understanding, but he did understand enough to pick up his bed. The rich young ruler contrasted, had great understanding, but it wasn't an understanding that counted. I love 1 Corinthians 2, where where Paul says, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. It's a mystery which, if the rulers of this age had understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So, great understanding, even just being a well healed guy, that wasn't getting him anywhere. Sixth thing is the man at Bethesda was healed by Jesus. The rich young ruler remained in the same state. You, are you getting an idea of why Jesus said in Matthew, He said, It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than to put a camel through the eye of a needle? Because one of the things that is required for us to understand grace is helplessness. Truly. When we were helpless, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he saved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in a state that there's nothing else we could do, what do you supply in in, in the equation for salvation? Nothing. You simply believe it. The seventh thing is this guy was totally reliant upon God's grace and the rich young ruler was reliant upon the Mosaic law. The man at Bethesda was poor and he went away rich. The rich young ruler was rich and he went away poor. The man at Bethesda was warned about sin. Don't go back to it, lest a worst thing come upon you. And Jesus, in his response to this rich young ruler, warned him. But being blind, he remained in his sin. Interesting, Jesus looks at both of these guys and he loves them. Implied with the man at Bethesda stated with the rich young ruler. He looks at this guy and he's filled with compassion. He loves this guy. I just bring these out because it's to contrast, it's interesting. Here's a guy that has nothing. He has nothing to offer Jesus. He has nothing in material goods. He he has nothing to gain, nothing to lose. He's just kind of flat out there across it. He doesn't have anything. Jesus doesn't want anything from him, but his heart. And Jesus reaches down, he goes to the worst guy at the pool, like he went to the worst woman in the town at Sychar. He goes and he seeks this guy out and he heals him because he wants to make a point with this guy's life. We'll talk about it more next week, but the point is he goes to the people with the greatest need. You see that over and over and over again in the gospel. Why? In the same way he comes to us. We bring nothing. I you know, I can clearly remember hitting my knees at a state in my life when my life had stalled. I was sitting in my office chair and, and I was so filled with grief over my daughter passing and my life had just completely unraveled and just slipping out of my chair and onto my knees and saying, Father, I have nothing. I bring nothing. I'm a broken man with a broken life and I, and I give you all of it. And I believe that in my life, and it's not that your kid has to pass away, don't get me wrong. For me, that's what it took. But in my life, that was a defining moment. That was a moment where I became like this guy at the pool of Bethesda, and I had nothing to offer, man. I was crippled. I was done. And Jesus reached down and touched my life. I didn't get up from that prayer and call all my buddies. I didn't get up and feel differently. I was still bummed out. But through that surrender, I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, through surrender... We give him the freedom to work and to move and to operate in our lives in supernatural ways that he has not been able to prior. He simply wants people that bring nothing, that expect him to do something. And that's what this guy did. We're going to look at it next week. Again, we're going to look at the Jews' response to him and all of that. But I just want to encourage you this morning. Don't leave here bummed, like, gee, you know, it's, he wants me to be like this lame man at the pull of Bethesda. That guy was really, he was, in, he was in really good shape. Physically, not so much. Spiritually, he was open. He'd been struggling with this thing for 38 years. And Jesus took it from him. Good stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage in the Gospel of John and how you work and move. I I continually marvel, Lord, at your graciousness and how you come to us when we have nothing to offer but a heart that is willing to do your bidding. And so, Father, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Anoint us, Lord, to serve you in our families, in our workplaces, Lord, to be that light in a dark, dark world that doesn't have any answers. Oh, Lord, we just simply want to be clay in the potter's hands. We pray, Father, that you would work, that you would direct, that you would guide us, Lord. Give us those divine appointments that we could reach out. Give us the gift of boldness as we deal with those who are unsaved in this messed up world. So we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray you would bless our time together as we fellowship and continue to spend time with one another at our potluck and ask, Lord, that you'd be at the center of all of it. We thank you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.